0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Key Life Fellowship Men's Bible Study. In this series, Pastor Kirk Hall will be teaching through the book of the Bible known as the Revelation. At this time, open your Bible as the Holy Spirit unveils God's truth to your heart. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. And we will be starting tonight Lesson 7. Can you believe it? Lesson 7 already. And John is going to, in this passage, he is going to see Jesus for the first time since his ascension from this earth. He is going to, in this vision that we are going to cover tonight, see Christ. Uh, He hasn't seen him again since Acts chapter 1. And he is going to see his Lord and his Savior. Uh, Now, watch this, some 60 years after his ascension. And here's John. We're going to see John is, of course, on the Isle of Patmos in solitude and there because of persecution, longing for Christ, longing for Christ's return. And he's going to receive from God a vision of the glorified Christ. Christ. I can't imagine, nor can any of you, uh, I suspect, what was going through John's mind. The last time that he saw his Lord, he was leaving the earth with the clouds. Angel gave the disciples some instructions. And for 60 plus years, he hasn't seen his Lord, his Savior, his best friend. Now here he is on the Isle of Patmos. Worshiping, praying, seeking the will of God. And Christ is going to, in a vision, reveal His glorified self to John. And John is going to be stricken with awe, as he should. And so let's read that together. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 is where we will begin. It says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Remember, we talked about that number seven already. Pay attention. We're going to see Some sevens here tonight. He says to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like the blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars, because I know you were wondering that, what does it mean? He tells us. (laughs) The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We are seeing here that John, 60 plus years down the road from the ascension of Christ, is seeing Christ in his unveiled glory in a vision where God is showing him what is going on in the heavenly realms. Take note that he fell to the ground as a dead man. That should be our response even when we get that that limited glimpse of the glory of Christ. Here John sees in this vision The unveiled, spectacular, magnificent glory of Christ. The first time that he's seen him in 60 plus years. And he begins to describe him as best as he could by a man who was having a vision while he was falling on the ground as a dead man in awe of what he was seeing. This is the vision of the glorified Christ. He makes that very clear. We're going to see that the glory of Christ is going to be a theme all throughout Revelation. In fact, it's a theme all throughout the New Testament. But what John is doing here, he is unveiling for us what he saw when he saw Jesus in this vision, the vision of the glorified Christ. We see in verses 9 through 11, that vision. We see this in 9 through 11 as we recap that. He says, again, his name I John your brother and companion in in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This is a vision of the glory of Christ given to John on Patmos. We covered a lot of this in the introduction, but I want to remind you of this because it's very important that we see this. This is the last apostle on earth last apostle on earth. He's here and he's been exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Why? He says, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's saying, because I am standing up for the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, I have been exiled to the Isle of Patmos. I told you, I am one of the people who believes that he was exiled here by Domitian. And Domitian, the Roman emperor... Persecuting Christians throughout Rome, exiles John there because of the Word of God and because of the testimony of Jesus. He is preaching the Word of God, he is preaching the gospel, and he will not stop. Therefore, the persecutors cause him to be exiled and then to endure suffering, and he lets us know that. Your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance. You know what John wasn't doing? He wasn't whining as if he was the only one suffering. He speaks to the rest of the church and he says, I know you all are bearing your own burdens and you all are carrying your own crosses. You all are suffering. Did you know this suffering was a common theme in the New Testament church? They didn't have the luxury that we have in the Americanized church of thinking that there is no suffering. It was common to them. Here he is, he's on the isle of Patmos, he's suffering for the Lord, and he's patiently enduring. Did you see that? Patiently enduring. What was he patiently enduring toward? The return of Christ, the promised return for Christ to come and to set the record straight and to rescue his people. So this vision was given to John on Patmos in verse 9 and verse 10. We see this, it says, on the Lord's day, on the Lord's day. I was in the Spirit. This vision was given not only to John on Patmos, it was given on the Lord's day while John was in the Spirit. Now many people have many ideas about what he was talking about here, the Lord's day. Some people say, well, that must obviously mean the day of the Lord. I don't believe that because the day of the Lord is to come. We're going to see that when wrath and judgment come upon the earth as the Old Testament prophets declared. I believe more accurately when he says he was here On the day of the Lord, this was Resurrection Day. This was Sunday, where the New Testament church would celebrate the first day of the week in worship. Of course, John didn't have the luxury of attending any of the seven churches that he's going to write this letter to. John was here exiled, but I promise you this, he wasn't going to stop him from worshiping the King of Kings and Lord of Lords on the Lord's Day. And so here he is on the Lord's Day, Resurrection Day, Sunday, in an attitude of worship. It says he's in the Spirit. Now, a lot of people have kooky ideas about what this means, right? Some people think in the Spirit means speaking in tongues. Some people think in the Spirit means running around, acting crazy and, and out of order and not decent. It can't mean those things because Scripture would not condone those things, not in that manner. He says that he's in the Spirit. I want to simplify this for you so that you can understand it. When you see that term in Scripture, in the Spirit, what that means is this. He was in tune with God and his will. That's what in the Spirit means. We, we know in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, I believe, the Apostle Paul is instructing the church, and he is instructing those believers there at Ephesus in their prayer life. And he tells them to pray in the Spirit. To pray in the Spirit. What was he saying? He wasn't introducing them to some exoterical, crazy idea. What he was doing is he was teaching them something that they already knew. Jesus had taught them to pray, and here's how you pray. And I promise you this, when Jesus taught on prayer, he taught you how to pray in the Spirit. What is the key to praying in the Spirit? Let's go back and let's ask Jesus. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, when you pray, go into your closet. I believe this, on this Lord's Day, John was somewhere all by himself, praying just as the Lord had taught him to pray. He said, when you pray, go into your closet and pray this, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Why is that important? That gets you in tune with who God is. He is holy and he is to be revered. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know what praying in the spirit is? It's praying like Jesus taught us to pray. When you pray like Jesus teaches you to pray, I promise you this, you are praying in the spirit. Here he is, he is praying in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he receives this vision. Verse 11, verse 10, excuse me, it says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. He hears this voice, of course, that startled him. Why did it startle him? Because he was by himself praying and seeking the will of God. And all of a sudden he heard a voice And I bet it did sound like a trumpet. You ever been by yourself, thought you were the only one in the room, and someone said, hey, sounded like a trumpet. Might as well have been a trumpet. He hears this voice. Of course, it startles him. And the voice said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. He was to write down what he was going to see and he was given specific instructions to write these things down and give them to the seven churches. Send this message to them. Seven literal churches in Asia Minor. We've already talked about this. Modern-day Turkey, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Become familiar with those names because we're going to be talking a lot about them in the weeks to come. That's seven weeks worth of discussion on just those seven churches. But not only were they those seven literal churches, they are also, because we know this, that number seven is God's, what did we learn? Number of perfect completion. This is also talking to all of his churches throughout the complete and entire church age. That's why we have this in our hand today. Isn't that amazing? that we have this in our hand today that we can open it up and we can see the vision that John received on the Lord's Day while he was praying in the Spirit on the Isle of Patmos, suffering for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ when he heard a trumpet from behind him say, write these things to the seven churches. Now we get to look at that today in 2022. And I can assure you of this, when we get to these seven churches and we break them down and we see the characteristics, they are characteristics of all the churches throughout the ages. There are warnings in there that we need to heed. There are blessings in there that we need to receive. But as we look at this, I want you to see that he received this for a specific reason, and that was to send this message to the churches. I told you this in one of the intro lessons. All the people who think that revelation is some hidden code, you're mistaken. God wants you to understand this book. We've already learned that. that You're blessed when you understand this book. He wants the churches to understand this book so much that he sent it to seven specific churches in John's day, and those seven specific churches represent the churches throughout history. That's how important this book is, and that is to show you that God does want you to understand this. So we see that he receives this vision, the vision of the glorified Christ. That's the purpose of what we're seeing here in these verses tonight. Let's move to verse 12. We see the description of the glorified Christ. Received the vision of the glorified Christ, and he's going to specifically describe what he sees. We're going to talk about those things, we're going to talk about what they mean, what they mean in light of other scriptures, how we can interpret this, and how we can interpret this correctly. Verse 12 says this: We read on in this text, he says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. I bet you did. Here you were in prayer, everything was quiet, you were seeking the Lord. You hear the voice like a trumpet. Sure, you're going to turn around. I'm turning around. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So he heard a voice, and he turned around, and he sees seven golden lampstands. Right? Before you get all weirded out, we're going to see what that means and what that means exactly. Let's look at it for what it says. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, and he was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Go down to verse 20, and let's read this together. Verse 20 says, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You thought Jesus was joking when he said go therefore, and let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He thought Jesus maybe wasn't serious when He said, I am the light of the world. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, He sent His Spirit into us as light, so that that light can shine and reflect Christ to the world. So the seven candles that we see here, or lampstands, these are the seven churches shining the light of Christ. Now again, that's representative of those seven specific churches. But isn't that what churches throughout the ages ought to be doing, shining the light of Jesus Christ? Can I tell you this? A church that does not shine the light of Jesus Christ is not a church at all. It's a social club or it's a building where people gather. But don't call it a church if it's not shining the light of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? Just as John was shining that light through the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. So here's John, and he sees this going on. What does this represent? In verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw the seven golden lampstands, seven churches. This is a symbol of those seven churches, but again, it's a symbol of the churches throughout the ages. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. As he sees the glorified Christ, and he is describing Christ to us, we see Christ in the midst of the seven churches. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, while he was on this earth, he spoke to those original disciples who would be the beginning of his church, and he said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. He walks among The church and the churches. And here he is walking among the churches. And how is he walking? I want you to write this down. He's walking in the power and the authority of his church. He is the power and the authority in the church. He is truth and light dwelling in our midst, even now. As we study on Sunday mornings, the gospel of John, we see that term light many times. You read his epistles, you'll see it again. John talks about light and darkness more than anyone else in Scripture. Why? Because he understood that Jesus is the light that illuminates the churches. And he is there in his truth and in his authority because that's what light represents, truth. He is there in his truth, and his power, and his authority. And he is dwelling in the midst of his churches. Secondly, we see this as he's being described We see the authority as the head of the church. We see he is truth and light dwelling in the midst of his churches when we look at his power and authority. But he's also authority as the head of the church. Isn't that comforting? I can tell you this, it's comforting for me because I'm not in charge around here. He is. He is the true power and authority walking amidst his body, his church. He is the head. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church, the pastor, not the head of the church, just a small part. Christ is the head and the authority. The members, not the head. The committees, not the head. Jesus Christ, the head. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Why would he have it? supremacy in everything in all God's creation and not in his blood-bought church? It wouldn't be. He is supreme over all things, and he is the head of the church, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Jesus Christ is the head and the supreme authority in the church. Ephesians chapter 2 verse Ephesians chapter three, excuse me, verse 21. Paul says to him, "Be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever." Amen. It is His glory. It is His church. The church does not belong to us. right? Think about that next time you say, why don't you come with me to my church? You don't have a church. You didn't die and shed your blood to purchase a church. Would you like to come with me to the church of the living God that was purchased by the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Because you don't have a church. This is not your church. This is not my church. It's Christ's church. He is the one like the Son of Man in the midst of the seven lampstands. He is the power and authority in the church. That's what he's saying to us here as he unveils for us this description of the glorified Christ. We see he describes him as having power and authority. In his church. Next, he describes him in verse 13, the second part. Let's read that first part. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in ro- a robe reaching down to his feet. He's going to describe what he is clothed in. Watch this. And with a golden sash around his chest. A robe reaching down to his feet and a golden sash around his chest. What could this mean? I know immediately our mind goes to royalty. He's not speaking of royalty just yet. How do I know this? He has not returned as king yet. He will return as king. John is receiving a vision of heaven. And what is Christ doing in heaven? He is serving as the great high priest. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that you have a mediator and an intercessor who mediates and intercedes on behalf of his church? He's dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around him. Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees his vision of heaven, in Isaiah 6 verse 1 it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of his robe filled the temple. He is dressed in a robe. John says he was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet. Isaiah says his robe filled the temple. He's talking about his glory as the great high priest. Again, don't jump to his kingdom. His kingdom is going to be on this earth. When he comes and he sits upon the throne of David. We're going to get to that, I assure you. But In this vision, John is seeing and describing for us the glorified Christ who is the great high priest. The great high priest. The intercessor. The mediator. Without him, we could not approach the throne of God. Without him, we could not receive mercy. Without him, there would be no sacrifice applied. He is the great high priest. Romans chapter 8, verse 34 says, Christ is at the right hand of the throne of God. And what does it say he's doing right now? Interceding for us. He is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Remember when we were Romans and we talked about that? How amazing is that? That Jesus Christ, our intercessor, is there night and day, never sleeping never slumbering interceding on your behalf and my behalf and on the behalf of all believers throughout the ages 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5 says there is one mediator between God and man one no other one will do that one mediator between God and man Paul tells Timothy here the man Christ Jesus he is there and he is mediating and interceding as the great high priest. Hebrews chapter 4. Flip over there, verse 14. Let's read this together. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess." But we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. He came to this earth as the God-man, God in flesh, and he then ascended back into heaven after he came and he died as a sacrifice. He was buried and he rose again. That sacrifice for those of us who are in Christ has been applied by him. He is that great high priest who has applied that sacrifice. And he is that great high priest who is forever interceding on our behalf. The great high priest. He says, let us then. Let us then, because he is that great high priest who understands us. And who has been down here on this earth, yet he did not sin. It says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. God's throne. He says, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What is the, the writer of Hebrews saying here? He's saying that Christ is our great high priest and we need not be afraid to approach the throne of God. Once we lived a life of fear and trembling, meaning this, we feared God's judgment. Now because of Christ and the fact that He bore God's judgment and wrath on our behalf and He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God as our intercessor, He says, you don't have to fear anymore. You can confidently approach God's throne of grace so that you can receive mercy and find grace to help us in, our, in your time of need. Why is that so important? Doesn't the enemy like to tell you, well, you've blown it. Now you can't approach God. The Word of God says, oh no, that's not true. John says in this vision, oh no, that's not true. There is one who is robed with a robe that goes all the way to his feet. Isaiah said it filled the temple. He is showing us here, not only does he have that robe on, which was that high priestly robe, it has that sash on that robe describing for us, just as we see in Exodus chapter 28, verse 4, and we see in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 4, the robe and the instructions for the garments of the priest, that robe that was held together with a sash. Oh, anyone who understood the priestly order from the Old Testament when he reads Revelation understands. He's not talking about the robe of a king. Though he is a king, he is king of kings. John is seeing here the robe of the great high priest. And aren't you thankful that we have the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, which allows us to come before the throne of God's grace in our times of need, to find mercy and to find grace. John says he is the great high priest by that description in the second part of verse verse 13. We move on to verse 14. His head and hair were white like wool. Very interesting because last time John saw Christ, he was roughly 33 years old. And here, John is describing for us a head of hair that is white, like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. He is talking here in reference to the holiness of Christ. He is seeing Christ glorified in his glorified state, and he is recognizing this is the Holy One. This is the Holy One. And it's represented as the Holy One by His description. We see His holy deity. He says His head and hair were white like wool. What in the world could this be talking about? This is when we use what is known as the analogy of Scripture, where we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And Daniel tells us clearly what he's talking about. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. As Daniel sees a vision of heaven, here's what he says. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. Does that sound familiar? His throne was flaming with fire. There's that reference to fire that we just saw in the Revelation. And its wheels were all ablaze. Daniel, seeing the vision of heaven and seeing the Lord, just as John did. And you know what's interesting? It's not like the modern books that we see today, where people lie and say that they went to heaven so that they can sell books. Have you noticed that every one of these people who lie and sell books and say that they went to heaven, their description of heaven is completely different from the other people's description of heaven? I'm not real smart. Somebody's not telling the truth. When John sees the Lord, he says his hair is white as wool. When Daniel sees the Lord, he says his hair is white as wool. He didn't talk about the Lord as, as being uh, some... Purple-headed person up in the sky? Oh, I've heard strange things. You want to hear strange things about visions of heaven? Go watch a Sid Roth video. This guy thinks he goes to heaven all the time. What's interesting, he doesn't see anything that lines up with what Daniel sees and with what John sees. Yeah, y'all go ahead, write his name down. Go research him. You know, as many of the books... People claim to have gone to heaven that all of you oohed and awed about, and even some of you read. Some of them have even come back as they've grown older and got honest and said, you know what? All that was just to sell a book. I can assure you this, Daniel, John, they never met each other. Not on this side of glory. Their description is exactly the same. They're describing the Holy One in His holy place. They are describing His holy place. Deity. John here seeing the glorified Christ and describing his deity. We know what that means, I hope, at this point in time, his co essence with the Father, his co-equality with the Father, his co-eternality with the Father. He's seeing the Holy One, his holy deity. Not only that, he sees his holy demeanor. He says that he is, he goes as he speaks to us, he says that his hair is white like wool. And he says, it's white as snow. Why would he make two references to the white of his hair? Have you ever heard the term, as pure as the driven snow? Right, Because we know that a snow drift has been untouched. It is there, it is white, it is pure. This is talking about the holy demeanor of Christ. He is pure and he is perfect in all of his ways. There is no flaw in him. When John sees the glorified Christ, he says... He is deity, just as Daniel confirms. His white hair, white as wool, white as snow. Talking about his holy deity and his holy demeanor. That he is in co with the Father. He is in co Eternality with the Father, and He is in co equality with the Father, but not only that, He is as pure and as holy as the Father. He describes Him as the Holy One. His head, His hair were white like wool, white as snow. We see His holy deity, His holy demeanor, but let's look at this. As we read on, we're going to see His holy discernment that He is just and He's right in all of His judgments. Verse 14 spoke of his head and his hair white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Eyes like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze going in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing water. What is he saying here? He's saying he's all-knowing. Nothing gets past him. When he discerns With eyes of fire, He sees all. He knows all. There's nothing that's going to be hidden on judgment day. I assure you of that. When He judges and He makes judgments, He's right. And His judgments are final. Did you know this? Every judgment that Christ makes is right. And it's final. Oh, on that day. We already know this. Many will say, Lord, Lord, did not we... Cast out demons in your name. and not, Did not we do miracles in your name? Did we not do all these great things? We belonged to a church. We joined a Sunday school class. Didn't we do, do, do? He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Why, his judgments are right. And they're final. That's what this fire speaks of, the eyes blazing of fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Why is that important? The most important the most recognizable attribute of a king was his feet. Why? Because if you positioned yourself properly in the presence of a king, the only thing that you would see is his feet. We have to see what's going on here. As John is receiving this vision, he sees from head to toe, and in just a moment, he's about to take the proper position. He's going to fall on his face. Shouldn't that be the proper position that we find ourselves in when we get a glimpse of the Holy One, when we read His Word, when we read things like this? Shouldn't that be our response? We continue in the description that He's giving us here. We see He is the Holy One, the great high priest, the power and authority in His church. John doesn't stop there. Next part of verse 15 He says, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. We see here a description of the Sovereign Lord. We've seen a description of his holiness, holiness. His authority in the church, we've seen the description of his great high priestly duty. Don't we see all those things in the New Testament? John moves then to the fact that he is sovereign. Lord, his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. His eyes, in his, eye, in his right hand, excuse me, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. It speaks of the glory of Christ and His sovereignty. He's sovereign in so many aspects. In fact, He's sovereign over all. You hear me say this over and over again. I assure you, I did not coin it. I took it from someone. He is sovereign over all, or He's not sovereign at all. And so we see in looking at this description of the glory of Christ, it speaks of the fact that he is sovereign in leading his church. How does he lead his church? By his authority. And what is his authority? It's his word. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, we see an example of this. When he speaks, we ought to listen. Some of you will understand this reference. When Jesus speaks, E.F. Hutton ought to listen. Because in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, this is what is said. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is, we know, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And watch this. It says this from the Father. To all those who were present, listen to him. This is the voice that is like the sound of rushing waters. If you've ever been in the wilderness, you thought you were in the middle of nowhere, and as you got closer to that that stream that was some type of rapid and the water was rushing through there, you could distinctly pick up and you knew immediately that is the sound of rushing water. Why? Because it speaks with authority, doesn't it? He is leading his church by his authority. I will say this, if it is the true church, it is being led by his powerful word the Word of God is the only church leadership and growth manual that we need. It is like the sound of rushing waters. It is authoritative. So he is leading his church by his authority, his Word, the sound of rushing waters from his voice. But he's also sovereignly leading his church as we get a picture of his sovereign glory here by his messengers. By his messengers. Those who proclaim his word. Watch what he says here as we continue reading the text. He says his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. He speaks of his messengers. We go back to verse 20, because we've already looked there. We go back there to see who he's talking about here. He says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you this. That translation, angels... Many times in Scripture, is translated angel. But a better meaning here is messenger. He is talking about instead of, and I want you to transition your mind, instead of a messenger being some supernatural type of messenger, in the context of this, it is better understood not as angels, but as the human leadership in the church the messengers to the church the lead elders or what we call pastors or the lead pastor in the church who has been called and commissioned by god to deliver a message how do i know this because he was sending these to literal churches and those literal churches would then have the messenger of that church who was the pastor or bishop the elder of that church stand up before the congregation and read what John sent to him. Never anywhere in any New Testament scripture is an angel a messenger to the specific churches. In fact, God has set up offices in the church. We know it was first prophets, then apostles, and then the pastor-teacher. And here he is talking about the messengers, those stars that he holds in his hand and I'll tell you this, I've never been called an angel but he's talking about a pastor and I'm thankful that he holds me in his hand. And he's talking about these messengers and he's saying this, I am leading the church. how by my authority, my word and by my messengers. Now this begins to make sense, doesn't it? This weird book that you thought was just kind of kooky and had a whole bunch of symbolism. We know this. Is this not how he continues to lead his churches today? You want to see God bless a church? Have a messenger in the pulpit who preaches the word of God like rushing water as it is written. You'll see God do amazing things with that group of people for his glory, for his kingdom. These are the called men of God who serve in leadership in churches. So he is showing by this description... Jesus as the sovereign leader of the church. And how does he lead? By the authority of his word and through his messengers who he has called and who he has sent. That is consistent with everything that we see in the New Testament. We can read all of Paul's writings. He wrote three quarters of the New Testament. Never once did an angel write for Paul. Never once did Paul give instructions to an angel. Paul did not have authority to give instructions to an angel. But Paul did give instructions to other pastors, messengers of churches. In fact, he wrote to the messenger of Ephesus, who is Timothy. And he wrote that pastoral epistle to him. Because God leads his church by the authority of his word and by his messengers. Still remaining sovereignly in control through those two God-ordained entities. So we see as we look at the sovereign Lord here, he is leading his church by his authority, by his messengers. Number two, I want you to see this. He's also protecting his church. Watch what it says next. And out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. Out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. What in the world is this talking about? This is not talking about when he returns to judge the wicked by that same Double edged sword. Please see where we are in this vision. He is talking about the glorified Christ who is in heaven and who is our great high priest interceding for us. And here he is with the sword from his mouth, this double edged sword. What is he doing? This is a reference to the fact that his word is protecting and preserving his church. How does his word protect and preserve his church? It protects and preserves his church against the attacks of the enemy. How does the enemy come against the church? As an angel, messenger, all this is all starting to make sense, isn't it? A messenger of light. A false teacher coming, working, doing harm for Satan who is not teaching the truth of the Word of God, who is teaching false doctrine and false theology, who is teaching doctrines of demons, that is sending people to hell over and over and over again. What protects the church from that? The sharp double edged sword. It comes from the mouth of Jesus Christ, which we know is his word, and his word is protecting his church. Hebrews chapter 12, in describing this for us, it says, for the word, chapter 4, excuse me, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double edged sword, and it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before His eyes, before, before the eyes of him, him to whom we must give account. He is protecting and He is preserving His church with the double-edged sword of His Word. Why is it so important? Why at Key Life Fellowship do we t- take such a stand on the purity of the Word of God. And defending the truth accurately. in sound doctrine. And sound theology. Because that is exactly what Christ uses to protect you, His sheep. To protect me, His messenger. To protect the body of Christ. He uses the Word of God. He uses the truth. You know how I know this? Jesus prayed this. While he was on this earth, John 17, 17, he said, Lord, sanctify our Father, sanctify them by truth. And he says, Your word is truth. Set them apart, protect them, guide them, preserve them. How? By truth. He uses his word to protect his church. God's word holds us all accountable, doesn't it? Hebrews there, he talked about being held accountable. God's Word holds everyone who will submit themselves to God's Word accountable to His truth. If you are held accountable to His truth, His truth is preserving and protecting you. With every temptation that you face, God says this, I will provide a way out. You know what the way out is that He has provided for all of us? The truth of the Word of God. Every temptation of every sin that you face in this life, How to avoid that sin and the instructions on how to do that are contained right here. They're contained right here. You struggle with greed, the Word of God has the remedy. You struggle with lust, the Word of God has the remedy. You struggle with temptation to alcohol and drugs, the Word of God has the remedy. How does He protect and preserve His church? The double-edged sword that comes from His mouth. Find a Bible-preaching, Bible-teaching church. Anchor yourself there and be protected by the Word of God. So many people today, oh, we go to church because they have good children's programs. We go to church because they have good youth ministry. Dad, listen to me. Are you submitting yourself to the truth, the protection of the Word of God, the double-edged sword that comes from the mouth of Christ? Are you submitting yourself to that? Because that is where preservation and protection happen. You want a strong family? Set your family down every Sunday morning under the sound teaching of the Word of God. You say, well, Kirk, you're just saying that because you're a preacher. No, I'm saying I don't care if you go to church here. Go to church somewhere where they have a high view of God and a high view of Scripture and submit yourself to the Word of God and watch your faith grow and watch that double-edged sword protect your family Protect your home when families around you are crashing and falling to the ground. You're standing in the Word of God. You're standing on the Word of God. You're growing in the Word of God. See if the double-edged sword from the mouth of Christ doesn't protect and preserve you. Y'all, hold on a second. I might preach this evening. His double-edged sword, the Word, protecting His church. What else does John tell us here? Not only is a sovereign lord leading his church by his authority, by his messengers, protecting his church by that double-edged sword, the word that comes from his mouth. But he's also continually piercing the darkness. Look what he says, his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. I know a preacher who encourages his congregation every week and reminds them that you are light Going out into darkness. You know who the light is? It's not you. It's the brilliance of Christ shining forth from you. That is the only thing that pierces the darkness. And Christ here in the brilliance of his glory, John can only describe it as a face that was like the sun shining. You ever tried to look directly in the sun? You might think you can do it, but you can't do it long. John sees his face and says he's the one who pierces all the darkness. He is light. He's talking about the shining glory of Christ. and That shining glory of Christ ought to be what we're reflecting in the dark world that we live in. When we leave here, when we go out into the world, we ought to be shining with the brilliance of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts. To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Before you say, but that light doesn't live in me. Oh, you better hope that light lives in you. You better hope that light lives in you. You better hope you've been graciously given that light to shine. Go forth and shine it. Jesus said, let your light shine before men. So they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What a vivid picture John is painting for us as he is receiving this vision of the glory of our Savior, the glorified Christ, as he is seeing him again 60 plus years after he ascended into heaven. John again speaking the brilliance of his glory. We move on in the text. As we continue looking at the glorified Christ, we see the reaction to the glorified Christ. What does John do? seeing all this. John's seen some things so far, hasn't he? He's seen the power and authority of Christ in his church. He's seen the great high priest. He's seen the Holy One in all of his glory. He's seen the Sovereign Lord in all of his glory, leading his church by his authority, by his messengers, protecting his church by his word, piercing the darkness by his glory and his brilliance. His face that Shine like the sun. How does John react? Verse 17, we see this. And when I saw him, what a day that's going to be. He said, "When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I told you, if your posture is right in worship, all you're going to see is his feet, anyways. He fell to his feet as though dead. John reacts to the glorified Christ with reverent fear. I'm going to give you some scriptures. Get ready, write them down. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This is not the fear of judgment, because the judgment of John has already been executed on the back of Christ at the cross. This is reverent fear. This is the proper position. This is where we approach God with fear and trembling because of his holy majesty, not because we're afraid of his judgment, because he is everything that is opposite of who we are apart from Christ. John falls as a dead man, face to the ground, in reverent fear. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, again going back to Isaiah's vision. And the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying, and they were, were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And He says this, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man. Of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He says, Woe is me. And he falls in reverent fear. Job, chapter 42, verse 5. After Job has an encounter with God and God straightens Job out, we read this in a Roman study all the way through when we talked about the sovereignty of God. Did you tell the oceans when to stop? Job, that, that, that they can only go this far? Did, did you tell the stars to hang in the sky? You didn't do any of that. I did. And he saw the majesty and glory of God, and here's what he said, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you, therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Oh, the holiness and the majesty of God ought to bring us to our knees in reverent fear of who he is and who we are not. Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 28 like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day so was the radiance around him again describing the throne. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord and when I saw it this sounds interesting I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. How did Ezekiel find himself In God's presence, in his vision of the throne, he fell face down, just as John did. Why? Reverent fear of the magnificent holiness of God. Luke chapter 5, verse 8, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me. What did he see? Simon Peter just saw a miraculous catch of fish. He saw Jesus do a miracle, and a miracle that a man who had fished his whole life had never seen. What did he do? Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. There in the presence of Christ, just seeing a glimpse of his glory. John seeing full-blown glory falls on his face. Here we see Simon Peter sees a glimpse of the glory of Christ veiled in humanity. And he still realizes, I am worthless in comparison to the holiness of God. How did Jesus say to approach the throne of God? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We approach in reverent fear. John here, stricken with reverent fear. Not only is he stricken with reverent fear in that, his first reaction, we see that it is also Verse seventeen marked with proper worship. I told you that's the true posture of worship. On your face, in awe of who He is, he finds himself there in proper worship. Isaiah chapter six. We read on in the sixth chapter of Isaiah's vision. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Why is that important? Isaiah fell in reverent fear in the midst of the holiness of God. And he realized, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. And God sent an angel. He took that coal in his hand He touched the lips of Isaiah. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. What just happened here? Isaiah approached the glory of God in reverent fear. And in his reverent fear, God came to him. What did he say? He sent that messenger, the angel. He said, I've taken the guilt away from your lips. Now, you can worship. Now, you can serve God. What was Isaiah's attitude? Here I am. Send me. Isn't that worship? Isn't worship really falling on your face in reverent fear? And then standing to your feet? Here am I. Send me. Once you realize while you're there worshiping, that atonement has been made. That atonement was Christ, and He has cleansed you of all of your sin. No longer do we have to fear God, but we can now serve God in worship. We can actually fulfill what Romans chapter 12 talks about presenting ourselves, our own bodies, as living sacrifices. He found Himself in an attitude of proper worship. When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead, was worshiping him. Oh, the day where we get to worship him face to face, when we get to see his unveiled glory for the first time, when we fall down as dead men. And it's not an angel this time. But it will be the hand of Christ. You watch how this plays out as we read the rest of these verses. John, stricken with an attitude of proper worship. Just as we've seen Isaiah. Just as we saw there on Mount Carmel, you don't have to turn there, 1 Kings chapter 18, God's fire fell upon Elijah's altar as he was challenging the prophets of Baal. Their gods didn't show up. And he made fun of them. That's why he's one of my favorite Bible characters because he just laughed at them. Because he knew that their God was not real. And then on Mount Carmel, when God consumed the altar... A statement was made. When all the people saw this, they fell, verse 39 of chapter 18, prostrate and cried, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Do you see the posture there? They fell on their face and they worshiped. John falls on his face and he's worshiping here. Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, we see a great picture of what worship looks like. It says in Revelation 4, verse 10, Twenty-four elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things and by Your will they were created and have their being. We see that the reaction to the glorified Christ was reverent fear and worship. That ought to be our reaction to Christ, shouldn't it? And then we see this. We see the last thing in this text, the response of the glorified Christ. Watch how Christ responds here. This time, no angelic being coming and placing coals on Isaiah's lips or on John's lips. Because the atoning sacrifice for John had already been made on a cross. The atoning sacrifice for you and I has already been made on a cross. Verse 17 When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, and then he placed his right hand on me. Who did? Christ did. He placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, And what will take place later? The glorified Lord responds to John here. Pay attention how he responds. John falls in reverent fear on his face, in an attitude of worship. And Jesus puts his hand on him and says, Do not be afraid. What comfort from the Lord! Do not be afraid. Oh, can you imagine? John knew that gentle voice. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. He comforts him. How does he comfort him? By reminding him of who he is. He reminds him of his identity. Knowing that Christ is eternal That he is the eternal Son of God should bring great comfort to his children. He lets him know that. Do not be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. That's a a term that we can parallel with the term we saw last week the Alpha and the Omega. I am everything, John. Don't be afraid. What comfort we receive from knowing that our Christ, who is our glorified mediator in heaven, is everything. And he says, Don't be afraid. He gives him comfort from his identity, but he also gives him comfort from a second thing, and that is his finished work. His finished work. The fact that he is the resurrected Lord who died, who was buried, and who rose again. He gives him comfort by saying to him, John, I am the first and the last I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. He wanted him to know, John, I am he. I'm Christ. I am the one who rose from the grave. I am the resurrection and the life. You have nothing to fear. I am in sovereign control of all things. I have been glorified, and everything that I am telling you that is going to happen will happen. But be comforted because of who I am, because of what I did. I died, I was buried, and I rose again on the third day. Isn't that the theme of the church? Isn't that the theme of everything that we believe, the gospel, and everything that that, that we build a foundation upon, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Our faith is in Him and Him alone. In this instance, John's faith was made sight when he received this vision. He got to see ahead of time what he eventually got to see at his death and what we will all see at our death when we're in the presence of the Lord. And he got to see this so that he could pass it along to us. He tells him, write these things down, John, so that the churches will know. Verse 19, watch what he says. Write therefore, because I have shown you these things, write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. What does he do here? I'm going to tell you what he's going to do, and I'm going to close. He is going to give you the perfect outline for the rest of the revelation right here. This is Jesus Christ's outline of how to interpret the revelation. Pay attention to it. What you have seen. He says, John, write it down. What you have seen. He's saying, write down what you've seen in chapter one the vision of the glorified Christ. Oh, well, doesn't that give us hope? To know that he is alive, he is well. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God as our great high priest where he is forever making intercession for you and for me. That we can confidently go before God's throne of grace in our time of need to find the mercy that we so long for. Why? Because of Christ and who he is. He says, write down what you have seen. The vision of the glorified Christ. It's chapter 1 of Revelation. What is now? What is going on now? The present. What is happening in the present? He's writing to seven literal churches that are presently... Meeting that are presently doing the work of Christ. Some of them, some of them struggling. That's the second thing. He says, write, write down what is now. This is a description of Revelation chapter 2 all the way to chapter 4. What is now? Then he says this, what will take place later? The things that will happen in the future. He's describing for him chapters for all the way to chapter 22, the things that are going to happen in the future. In fact, this outline that Jesus gives John is the reason that I am and will remain a futurist. I am not a preterist. I don't believe that all these things have happened. Why? Because we have not seen the things that will happen in the future happen yet. And Jesus gives John a perfect outline and says, write this therefore, what you have seen, what's going on right now, and what will take place later. Oh, we're going to see those things as they unfold. We will begin our journey next time we meet in looking at the seven churches, or the first of the seven churches. But what a picture we have seen tonight of the glorified Christ that John saw. And I am thankful that he has relayed this message to us. The Church of Key Life Fellowship in 2022. And I'm thankful that because of that, we have great hope in Christ because He is our glorified living Savior, the one who was dead, but who is now alive. Aren't you thankful for that? Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to You thanking You so much for Your Word. God, I pray tonight that Your Spirit has illuminated the truth to these men as they have read the Scripture. Lord, I pray that they long for You and seeing You face to face even more now than they did when they walked in the building tonight. God, I pray that we would live our lives to bring you glory on this earth until the day where we get to stand or even bow in reverent fear and worship in your perfect glory. God, we long for that day. Lord Jesus, we long for your appearing. What I pray of blessing over each man who's here tonight. May you raise them up to be men of God who seek the glory of Christ in their life, in their family, in their home. May they live what the Scriptures instruct us to live. And in doing so, may they bring others to you who will hear the Gospel and believe. May they walk in your blessing and in the power of your Spirit. We give all the glory to you, Lord Jesus, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. We hope that you have grown through the teaching of God's Word. If you would like to find out more information about Key Life Fellowship, visit our website, keylifefellowship.com, or you can email us at info at org. We would love for you to join us in person. Our men's Bible study meets every Thursday night at 7 p.m. here at the Key Life Fellowship campus located in New Caney, Texas. Or feel free to join us at one of our Sunday worship services as well. As we conclude today's lesson, I will leave you with one reminder go out and be the light in a lost dark world.